All right, welcome everybody to this next session. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce what I think is going to be uh, quite an interesting session and a session where we get to uh, discuss the topic of fairness again. Um, I know this is a topic I've been involved in the professionalism course for a number of years and I know every, every time we have a, a, a live discussion this topic comes up and there's a lot of uh, heated and, and good debate and the room normally splits down the two where you've got you know, the extreme capitalists on the one side and, and, and the rest dividing you know, what is fair and what is the fair price for a product. Um, so I'm glad that Nigel's here to, to inform us a bit on this. Uh, Nigel has uh, worked for con uh, done consulting work for the last number of years. He ran his own independent consultancy for five years, but currently finds himself at Inclusivity Solutions, a startup company specializing in creating inclusive digital insurance markets. He's also consulted extensively to the Center for Financial Regulation and Inclusion on a number of microinsurance related projects, including insurance market diagnostics in Tanzania and Mozambique, and the regulation of informal funeral insurance providers. Nigel is also a member of the ASSO Microinsurance Committee and is vice, chairs or vice chair of the RAA's Microinsurance Working Group. So I think he's, he's well placed to instruct us on this topic. Welcome up, Nigel. Thank you very much, Jason. Um, my talk today, I think, is actually going to be quite boring. Um, sorry to disappoint those who've come just for my talk. Um, I've got no mention of smoothing, no solvency 2, no IFRS, um, no OCI, and I certainly don't discreet. Um, it does include a little bit of microeconomic theory. Um, I know very little about that, so anyone who does know more than I do about that, please feel free to chip in. Um, to keep the actuaries happy in the room, which I think should be everyone, there's a simple formula involved, and I do have one or two, two numbers in the presentation. But in order to start off, I'm going to do a quick poll, um, a show of hands. Who in the room thinks that a insurance scheme that offers a claims ratio of, they start at 100%, offers value to the consumers? And are the rest not listening or um, <laughs> fallen asleep already? I hope not. <laughs> okay, so let's then go. Who thinks a claims ratio of 75% offers value? Is that a, a few more hands, maybe? That's strange. 50%? Um, okay, the numbers are, are swirled, certainly dwindling a bit. 25%. Okay, who's brave? Okay, I certainly, yeah, there are one or two hands. Um, right, so my agenda today is I'm going to provide a little bit of a context around um, microinsurance and the value discussion, both from an international perspective and a local perspective. I'm going to start looking at the question of what is value. You can't say there is or isn't value until you know what value actually means. I'm going to introduce a method of measuring value. I'll try and go through that fairly quickly. Um, that, yeah, that's where the formula starts coming in. And then I'll take a, a look at a few initial results and dwell a little bit on the conclusions that we can draw from those results, as well as the implications and applications, particularly for us here in this room. And this is a, a talk about microinsurance, but I think the applications are just as wide across other types of insurance, so it's not only specifically microinsurance. 
But on the international front, um, there's been microinsurance is actually fairly new internationally, the concept. Um, it's been around in South Africa for quite a long time, probably under different names, funeral insurance, credit life, etc. Um, but there's been internationally there's been a, a strong focus on, on coverage. And we've seen a the massive growth in, in numbers of risks covered. So risks could be lives, it could be cattle covered in India and the agricultural insurance schemes, um, it could be small-scale farmers, health insurance, there's uh, asset insurance. So it's grown from about 78 million risks covered in 2007 to in excess of 260 million um, more recently. Now, as any market would start maturing, we are now seeing this, this shift of focus from specifically coverage to one of quality. Are we starting to provide value? Um, does microinsurance actually improve the welfare of the consumers who buy the product? And yeah, that is a very, very clear shift. And yeah, there are a lot of debates happening internationally around that now. Coming closer to home, um, there's a lot of debate around um, quality. It's particularly relevant relating to treating customers fairly. Um, we should all know about that in this room. Thank you. I trust that'll be a bit better. Um, and also on consumer credit insurance, um, the National Treasury Task Force um, produced a technical paper in 2014 that showed that the, the average claims ratio on credit life schemes was 20%. Um, the claims ratio on movable property insurance was 12%. And that's probably your extended warranty type of, of um, insurances on your electronic goods and so on that's purchased. So I'm glad to see that none of you designed any of those products or rated any of those products that are out there, since none of you think you, it's good value. So a lot of questions start arising from this context. Um, I've mentioned the shift from coverage to quality. Um, how do you even measure value? It's, it's a fairly complex thing to measure. Um, can low claims ratios be justified in the fairly early stages of development of the industry? Um, there are probably a few plausible arguments that can be given there around lack of economies of scale, even though we're covering 260-odd million risks. Um, it's very low premium business, so economies of scale is still a, a big issue out there. And reward for risk that the early movers are taking. Um, surely these guys should be rewarded a bit more for risk than latecomers to the party, um, so they can probably take higher profit margins. Is there a point at which low claims ratios represent negative value for customers, so you're starting to destroy value? Um, and how does insurance stack up against the other coping mechanisms that may be out there for, for low-income consumers? My focus today is specifically going to be on whether microinsurance actually improves welfare for the low-income consumers. And especially when claims ratios are low, for example, the situation that we have in South Africa around credit life with a 20% claims ratio, um, should we be offering this product even? Um, that's probably a very, very valid question. I'm going to consider it by using a hypothetical life microinsurance program. Um, and yeah, the, the fact that it's hypothetical, I think, um, just means that there can be a whole lot more work actually done around this going forward. 
So if anyone is interested at the end of the, the discussion, please feel free to start volunteering and see how you can get involved in this debate and we can take it a bit further. In terms of defining value, I'm looking specifically from a consumer perspective and not the other stakeholders out there. So I don't look at it from an insurer's perspective, I don't look at it from um, intermediary perspective, donor perspective, it's purely from, from the consumer side of things. Um, I'm also looking only at financial value. Um, I think we need to recognize that there are other forms of value that insurance does contribute. Um, for example, on the healthcare side, it provides often access to health services which would not be available to those clients or improved health services. That in itself actually has a very positive impact on welfare. Um, it allows farmers on the agricultural side to pursue um, riskier farming activities. Um, so you can plant a crop that may have higher risk of, of disease, but potential higher yields, and therefore, you know, if you are protected, you will be better off by following that, um, planting that crop rather than a low-risk crop. In my thinking around financial value, I've looked at, or basically come up with three categories of value. The first is what I've called absolute value. And so this is, um, I'll say insurance provides absolute value if consumers are better off purchasing insurance than not purchasing insurance. So it's, a, it's an absolute thing. Relative value, you then start comparing against other alternative risk coping mechanisms, such as maybe um, a microloan or potentially other informal mechanisms like um, burial societies, informal savings, remittances, etc. And at the top of the, the value chain, um, what I call best possible value. So this would be a, um, something that probably only exists in utopia, um, a, a good equal sharing, fair sharing of the revenue and profits amongst all stakeholders involved. My focus today is going to only be on absolute value. Um, it is the simplest one to consider, and I think at this early stages of, of the discussion, absolute value is probably the most relevant. So in terms of the methodology, um, we all live in a fairly complex world. It's no different for the low-income consumers out there. There are a lot of risks involved. Um, and in order to start trying to make sense of this complex world, we need to try and simplify it. So, I've created my own little world in which I have quite a number of simplifying assumptions. Um, I don't think it's necessary to go through the assumptions, but it is quite important if you want to delve a bit deeper into this to, to understand the assumptions behind the model. Otherwise, you're probably not going to use the model correctly. Um, but just to introduce some of the terminology, I'm assuming that all households have the same probability of death, which I denote by Q. We're all familiar with that. Um, households have a, a known level of wealth to start off with, which is W0. Um, the financial impact on, of death is the same across all households. I denote that with, with L. Income and expenses of the households are, are equal over a period. So effectively, if there is no risk event happening, I'm assuming that the wealth at the end of the period is equal to the wealth at the start. I ignore time value of money. Um, all simplifications, and the one that I like best is that we can price perfectly for risk. So our, um, the mortality that is experienced, we've priced perfectly for that, that, um, that experience up front, so we know exactly what's going to happen in future.
I think a lot of you can identify with that. Um, so, in, in Nigel's perfect world, um, there are two possible wealth outcomes at the end of the period that we're considering. Either there is no death, in which the wealth is equal to the starting wealth. If there's a death, your wealth is reduced by the financial value of um, financial impact of that death, which I've denoted with the L. Let's introduce a life microinsurance scheme here where a household can purchase life insurance at a price of, of P, an annual premium of P, providing a benefit of, of S. Then we, we can write a simple outcome matrix for whether a death occurs, where you've got insurance, where you don't have insurance. So for example, if there is a death, which you know the probability is, is Q, if you don't have insurance, your wealth is reduced by the cost of that loss. So you could consider that in simple terms to be the price of a funeral in South Africa. If the household had insurance, you'd still have incur your loss. You'd have paid a premium and you would get the benefit of your, your sum assured. Now, <coughs> Utility theory is, is sort of the area where um, yeah, I start getting out of depth very quickly. But it basically provides us with a, a method of measuring the value that consumers would place on, on a particular or a possible wealth outcome where there's uncertainty around that wealth outcome. And using expected utility theory, um, we can look at the two scenarios where you've got insurance and where you do not have insurance. And you simply calculate the expected utility coming out of those two scenarios where you've got two possible outcomes. So to take the no insurance scenario, the probability of no death multiplied by the utility of the wealth at the end of that period, if there was no death, plus probability of death multiplied by the utility of the wealth outcome if there was a death, and similarly for, for with insurance. Now, going back to my definition of absolute value, we can now quite easily say that insurance provides absolute value if the expected utility with insurance is greater than the expected utility without insurance. And we're essentially reducing the, the, or not the decision, but whether there is value or not to a fairly simple formula. Um, in terms of an example, the crux of the matter here is obviously your utility function that you need to use. Take a different utility function with different parameters, you'll get different results. The utility function that I've used is one that's generally accepted by our dear friends, the economists, as being um, the most relevant form of utility function out there to describe uh, behavior. The parameter gamma is an indication of the level of, of risk aversion of, of individuals. And just to add a few numbers, this is where the hypothetical example comes in, but I think most of us will agree that it is fairly... Um, uh, the numbers that I've chosen are probably fairly close to what, what would happen in practice. So we start off with argument's sake of a starting level of wealth of 10,000 
our probability of, of death in the household is, is 1%, probably a little bit low in South Africa. Um, but it's, it's um, yeah, I'll get to the results later, but I'm not particularly sensitive to that assumption. The loss I'm assuming in this example is 10,000, so roughly the cost of a funeral in South Africa. Quite important to note that in this example, it um, depletes the entire wealth which this household has. The insurance benefit is 10,000. We've priced for a claims ratio of 50%, which gives us an annual premium of 200. Um, and we know that's, that's the experience as well. And then in the no insurance scenario, you can very easily calculate that expected utility to be 198 um, units of utility for a risk aversion level of 0.5%. Now, I'll explain a little bit more about those parameters as well. Um, now, it's probably a fairly good time. So, the 0.5% the is actually the bottom end of your, your risk aversion, so it's indicating that um, someone is less risk averse. It's based on various experiments that have been done in Ethiopia with small-scale farmers relating to how they make decisions with respect to risk. So, it's, it's based on empirical evidence. And that's the, the lower end of risk aversion. So we can go and do that expected utility calculation for different claims ratios. Um, where you don't have insurance, your utility obviously remains at 198 because you don't have insurance, claims ratio doesn't have any impact. On where you have insurance, what I'm basically doing with the claims ratio is saying that um, the lower your claims ratio for a given or known incidence rate, you are then obviously just, if your claims ratio reduces, you're simply increasing your loadings, which means you increase your premium. So your utility increase, or let's say utility reduces as claims ratio reduces because your cost of insurance is increasing. So if you go back to the formula, the P in the formula, the minus P, is what increases, so you're reducing your end wealth by the increasing cost of insurance. So interesting to see at a claims ratio of 30%, um, your expected utility of no insurance is 198, with insurance 196, do your comparison, insurance does not provide absolute value. At around about 50% it does, at 70% it very definitely does. So we can already see that there's a point here at just over 50% claims ratio in this very specific example where we'd say insurance is offering absolute value. Now you can take this and extend it a little bit further by starting to look at different levels of starting wealth, which is what this graph shows us. So for example, at a starting level of wealth of, of 10, you get, um, at a claims ratio of 50%, you start, um, insurance starts offering absolute value. As you move up the, the level of starting wealth, so you obviously get that rising curve towards the right where it increases up to a starting wealth of 50%, you require a claims ratio of around about 95% in order to provide absolute value. And this is in the circumstance, remember, of a 
less risk averse individual, so sort of bottom end of risk aversion. And important to note the, that the loss here is 10,000. So I guess the question comes up now, what, um, what happens for more risk averse individuals? Um, I've only looked at the lower end of risk aversion. Let's now add someone who's more risk averse to this. So let's increase our, our coefficient of relative risk aversion to 2.9. And there you see quite a profound effect. The shape of the curve where insurance starts offering absolute value reduces. At the higher ends of wealth, it reduces, say, 95 to around about 80%. At the lower end of wealth, it reduces from 50% all the way down to 10%. Um, and that's, that's a very, very big increase. But also important to note here is that the graph is very, very steep at those low levels of, of wealth. So if someone moves up a little bit in terms of their wealth, you're scooting back up to a 40-50% claims ratio at which absolute value is going to be provided. And the two graphs that I've shown so far has basically assumed a, a loss of 10,000. But what happens if that loss amount on the death or on the risk event starts varying, if it's lower or higher? So these three curves are taking still that, that now the 0.9% level of risk aversion, so the higher level of risk aversion and the, the sort of reddish brick-colored graph there is equivalent to the graph of the, the same color graph of the previous slide, just to put it into perspective. The blue line shows for um, a loss of 5,000 and the green one of 20,000. So the shape, again, is, is actually very, very, very similar. And this is largely a function of that form of utility curve. But it's quite interesting to note then that for the loss of 5,000, the claims ratio at which absolute value um, is provided by insurance is 10% for a starting level of wealth of 5,000. You look at the loss of 10,000, you need a starting wealth of 10,000 for that claims ratio of 10%. Um, and again, that's a function of the the specific utility curves that are, um, have been chosen here. Um, I won't go into the detail of why that, that is the case, but again, suffice to say that the leading economists do view this as the most reasonable way of representing utility and how individuals actually do make decisions in the face of uncertainty. Right, um, Jason, I don't think you'll need that five-minute warning because I'm right at the end already. Um, in terms of conclusions, um, this is a very initial um, type of, of um, analysis that has been done, and I do recognize there is a lot of work that can be done, and the intention behind this is to try and start generating, first of all, a bit of debate around this issue, and secondly, hopefully, a bit of interest um, for people who know a bit more about this space to, to get involved and to maybe take the research a little bit further. 
But in terms of the conclusions, and going back to the initial question around microinsurance, does it add value to low-income consumers? Um, my conclusion on the initial analysis is yes, it certainly does, but be careful around the, the level of claims ratios. You certainly can't come with a blanket statement saying insurance adds value. Um, there does certainly seem to be a level of, of claims ratio that you can probably put a cut off. Um, how low is too low? Um, my gut feel, and based on the, the analysis here, is probably around about the 40% mark. Um, and this is particularly when the loss event has a major impact on wealth. Um, there are very isolated circumstances, I think, where lower claims ratios may be justified, but then you need a few, you need two particular circumstances to hold. First, your wealth has to be totally wiped out, and secondly, you need to be on the on the, the more risk-averse side of things. And that's probably only applies to a very, very small part of the population. So you know, I think if you're starting to go down lower than the 40%, maybe 30% mark, you're getting onto very, very, very shaky ground, I would say. Um, in the case of, of smaller risks, um, in other words, where the impact of the risk event is probably less than half of what your wealth is, um, you need quite a substantial claims ratio in order to start justifying a value. So, in terms of the applications for us in this room, I'd see two main applications. First of all, for those of us who are involved in product development and pricing, I think you'd be really hard-pressed to start justifying any claims ratios that are below probably the 40% mark. Um, and, yeah, if there are if there is any business out there which that you are looking after that has claims ratios below the 40% mark, I think particularly considering treating customers fairly and so on, you need to start considering ways of, of improving value to your clients on that. Um, for those of us who are involved in, um, in, in approving products and product developments, repricing, etc., I think it's really crucial that if you do not do it already, that you bring in an explicit measure of value um, and claims ratios um, in your retail business is quite a, a strange thing. Um, we don't really apply it, but you could come up with a fairly simple measure, something in the order of present value of benefits that you are going to be paying out or you expect to pay out to your clients over your present value of premiums and make sure that that at least is in excess of, of 40%. Right, and that's the, the end of the presentation. Since I've been talking a little bit about impact, um, just one, one further question um, to, to check impact and see who's still awake at the end of the presentation. Um, a quick show of hands, if you would have changed your mind as to where you would have put your cutoff of value after the presentation. So for those of you you showed a, put stuck your hands up at 25, 50%, etc. Would you have changed your mind now after this presentation? Okay, great. I like it. <laughs> We're all converted. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, Nigel. Yes, we do have probably about 10 minutes for questions, so can I start seeing some hands? Okay. 
down here in front on the right. Hi, thank you for um, you know, it's a very simple presentation. Just would like to remind people that uh, utility theory is always the basis of um, insurance. Um, without utility, the concept of utility theory in the insurance industry wouldn't exist. So there's nothing new in, in that sense. But I like it being applied, if you like it, at putting some practical examples in to try and see where, where insurance makes sense. And then secondly, um, I wonder if we could apply this concept of utility theory to my smoothing inequity challenge this morning. That would be a real challenge for, uh, for some <laughs> academic. Right, there's one here in the front. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Nigel. I think it's, you know, we have so much conversation about fairness and value and so on. So uh, some actual numbers, some, you know, so we do get the, the debate going, so I really enjoyed that. Uh, the reason I didn't put my hand up at any of the claim ratios earlier on is that it depends who gets paid the benefit. So if the benefit is being paid entirely to a, a lender, for example, I think it can very easily be unfair at 100% claim ratio. Um, but the actual point I guess I wanted to put to you, and I, I don't think this is what you were saying, but I, I'm worried that it could be interpreted this way. If you have low wealth, or if you are such a poor, or if you're particularly vulnerable because the impact of death is very big, then we can get away with charging massive premiums. So let's do that. Let's charge the higher premiums to the most poor, vulnerable citizens. So I, it wasn't what you said, uh, <laughs> but I guess there is a, uh, maybe some danger that in a market where we are offering a single price, the only people who pick it up are the poorest, most vulnerable, which is maybe a little bit worrying. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, yes, I agree 100%. It's not meant to be a justification to low premiums. Um, low claims ratios, low value. Um, but also, I think it's quite important to note that those, when you start dropping below, say, the 40% level, um, stand up. Um, it's a bit easier to see. Right? So, dropping below the 40% level can only provide value where you need to have a few specific circumstances which come together. So, your wealth has to be totally depleted. So, and as soon as you start moving a little bit further up the wealth chain, that no longer holds. So, you know, in my example, if you go from, say, 10,000 wealth to 12,000 wealth, it's starting wealth, it doesn't hold any longer. So, you need to be in that very bottom end of the chain. Um, and you also need to be most risk averse as well. Without those conditions holding, then you already need to be up at the 40% level or so. So, I think that's very important to, to bear in mind as well. Thanks, Nigel. Um, I've just got a quick comment. I think it's probably worth extending uh, your study to look at where that um, other side of the claims ratio is actually going. So where is the profit margin and is it actually economically viable? Because obviously it's one thing to say 40% claims ratio adds value and it's, uh, to, to the consumer, which is obviously ultimately important for economic viability. But where is that other 60% assuming using a 40% claims ratio actually going? Because obviously in a microinsurance space, depending on the product type, there's often very high overhead costs, very high distribution costs uh, associated with physical shop infrastructure, etc., etc., which raises that. And then if you look at new capital requirements, etc., adding additional buffers on top, um, is the product actually economically viable at the end of the day? Because you might come to the realization that there's a very small profit margin even at a 20-30% pure claims ratio. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. So that's sort of where I was getting to with the, the um, best possible value. Um, 
which is, in my mind, at the moment, a secondary consideration. Um, but yeah, within, yeah, the fact that you may not want to put a product out there that has a payment ratio at least 40% because the overheads are high and the capital requirements are high, um, then you really need to consider whether you should actually be putting that product out there at all or not because you potentially are destroying welfare to the low income market. Um, and that's probably what we need to start looking at various innovations around the actual costs of doing the business. Um, how do you find technology that's going to change, that's going to be a game breaker? Um, a lot of people are betting on mobile, mobile insurance to do that. But yeah, Jerry is certainly out um, in the market insurance internationally. You do see some very low claims ratios, and personally, I see one of in the order of 0.5%. Nigel, my name's Gary. Um, the, uh, okay, so your, your key model, I guess you get there, assume that the, your base assumption actually seemed to assume that people had enough money to cover the costs of the funeral to start off with. But I think for these households, most of them are probably don't have that money to start off with. So what answer would you have got if your wealth at the beginning was zero, um, I didn't see that as an alternative. Yeah, the simple reason for not being shown is that the utility function is actually not defined when the wealth goes into negative. Um, so, mathematically, the answer doesn't exist. <laughs> but um, <coughs> you can certainly make an inference around that. So, first of all, what yeah, low income consumers often don't have the money available. So what, what usually happens is they use um, informal mechanisms to cope, so collecting money from friends, family, remittances, etc. Um, and, and often they can push into credit. So the one thing that I didn't touch on there was the credit side thing, which I have done quite a bit of thinking around. And I think from initial analysis, which apparently is flawed, according to experts on utility theory. Um, credit is very clearly a, a worse option because of the, the actual cost of that credit. Um, you only financing a particular event after it has happened, you're not pooling that risk amongst the fraud. So the magnitude of the repayments on a credit for 10,000 is in the order of 1,000 per month credit. To ensure that it's probably 20 for now. Um, and that's just the, the type of magnitude says, credit is not accessible. But to try and answer your question and just applying the logic behind the utility theories, the further you go down your wealth um, continuum, the more valuable the insurance becomes. Let's get here. Just to follow on that, I think. Uh, Paul also touched on that. This, isn't that exactly what the, the value of insurance is when you, after the event, um, your wealth is negative? And that's, you know, the, there is a, a, a cost to, to access uh, that kind of protection or that uh, risk protection. Yes, certainly. But, um, yeah, I agree really don't feel that we can use any of those justifications. I assume that's not what you're saying, to, to try and move the, the acceptable levels of claims ratio to ideas of value further down so that we can 
Det er ikke så skærmigt for, at jeg også er lige lidt For the interesting presentation, uh, first I'd like to just start with a comment on the questions about negative wealth, which is that probably if you're uh, me measuring utility of wealth, you need to take into account value of future earnings. Uh, and so if you do consider that, then very, very few people would go into negative wealth, even if they take it out alone, uh, because you should count the value of the earnings they can make later to repay the loan. Um, and so then most of the problems will go away. Uh, but my actual question is that, considering that there are many policies, microinsurance policies being sold with very low claims ratios, uh, would you say that this is a sign that either uh, your utility function that you're using and to measure value is not reflective of actual consumers in, in the market, or would you say that there's uh, something wrong with the way we're selling policies, as in, uh, are we selling them in a very anti-competitive competitive way that's actually very unfair to consumers, so that they can't make decisions based on what we suppose is their true utility function. Uh, and if so, how would you change that? Thank you. Take our last question. Hi, Nigel. Um, just thinking about the evolution of microinsurance in South Africa, especially the life side. Um, we traditionally have stock files in the, in the rural areas where there is very low, if you think about it from even a stock file perspective, there are low claims ratios. But that's not really a problem because the capital remains within um, sort of the ownership of the members of the stock file. Do you think there is a possibility for life companies to consider a sort of profit-sharing arrangement where, regardless of low claims ratios, the policyholders still participate in the profits of that, um, of that scheme? Yeah. In my view, I think the key is what, what goes back to the consumer. So from a value perspective, whether it's direct benefits or whether it's some form of profit share, um, 
going down the profit share route does obviously raise significant um, regulatory issues because it can very easily be a backdoor to siphon off a lot of profits elsewhere. So um, I think that's one of the key issues to consider that, in that circumstance. All right. Thanks, Nigel. Um, I think we're going to move straight on to the next session. Um, yeah, join me in saying thanks to Nigel one last time.